I started trading tapes a few years later. So when I was 12 years old, I started trading tapes and my friends, I, I was asking them to send me things and, and, you know, I would occasionally buy tapes, 10, $15 a pop. I did the HTML for John McAdam in exchange for tapes. And John had a very extensive collection. So I got a lot of stuff from him. Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is the Stick to Wrestling Podcast. I am doing this intro. I was watching some NWA wrestling from 1987 and Road Warrior Hawk referred to Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson as a couple of clam heads and I am cracking up. He said it like 10 minutes ago and I thought that was the funniest thing in the world. I've got some splaining to do as Ricky Ricardo would say. Steve Generelli and I, a couple of years back, started recording a podcast that was going to be called The National Expansion, and it never got off the ground for a whole bunch of reasons, the biggest one being that I felt like two pod- doing two podcasts was going to be a little bit too much for me. Um, but what the podcast was going to be about was the WWF expansion 40 years ago in 1984. So the podcast was really good, and I didn't want to just beach it, so we're going to kind of merge it with stick to wrestling um this show is going to be about what led up to january 1st 1984 and then that podcast is going to take over steve and i used to do a quarterly review of the wwf 40 years ago we will now be doing monthly reviews and we're going to be using the audio from the national expansion podcast that that makes any sense if it doesn't don't worry just listen to stick to wrestling like you normally do and here we go we're going to talk about all the events in the World Wrestling Federation leading up to uh, December 31st slash uh, 1983 slash January 1st 1984. Let's go. Hello everyone. My name is John McAdam. Welcome to the latest edition or the latest podcast from the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This is called the National Expansion. And what this what this podcast is going to be about is the World Wrestling Federation expanding nationally in the years 1984 and 1985. I want to bring on my co-host, and he's going to be the co-host every single week or every two weeks this podcast is going to come out, Mr. Steve Generali. Steve, thank you for doing this. Well, thank you, John, and uh, it's it's really a pleasure. It's a period of our lives we both live through and uh, look back on now, and, and uh, I guess as a serious-minded wrestling fan or hardcore fan, I would say that 1984 has got to be probably the most interesting year in wrestling that I could imagine. I agree with you. I think what happened in 1984 was even more interesting than the wrestling war of the 1990s, which was also interesting. But, I mean, just a world that we couldn't imagine. I mean, I was used to living in a world where the World Wrestling Federation was between Maryland and up to Maine, west to Pittsburgh. And that was it. And it was, you know, Florida had its own promotion. Georgia had its own promotion, et cetera. It was the only world we knew, but we, I didn't know at the time that that world was going to change dramatically. Well, it, it really changed forever. And, uh, you know, for better or worse, I mean, that's up to the fan uh, listening, I guess. But, uh, but there was so much put in motion, you know, years and years before 1984 to really set these wheels in motion. I mean, we had uh, 
things like the old territories that just dried up. Like we had the Sheik's promotion that was gone by 1981. We had uh, promotions like Mike LaBelle, who was done by 1982. We had Shire's promotion that was done by 81. And uh, you know, all of these things uh, basically created a perfect storm where Vince could make his national move. And uh, two other huge things that happened, I, I should say, uh, 19... 82, January 1st, Sam Mushnick of the great NWA president had his final card, his retirement card. And then the other huge thing that happened at the end of the year, December 1982, uh, Jim Barnett, the legendary promoter, gets pushed out of the Georgia office and uh, it, it eventually leads the process where Vince McMahon takes over his slot on TBS. And and we'll we'll talk on that later in the weeks to come, I'm sure. But all of these events played such a key role in what was about to happen. They did, and Terry Funk told a story uh, that in 1979, he comes home uh, to his house in Amarillo, and WTBS is now on his cable uh, system, and World uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling was on, and Terry said at that very moment he knew the territories were dead. This is five years before Vince finally makes his move. <laughs> that, that's, that's really funny. And, 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 you know, another thing that, that also kind of piqued my curiosity, you know, one of, one of the favorite pictures that we, we see on our Arcadian Vanguard uh, websites, uh, you see pictures of uh, Vince McMahon standing next to Gordon Soley at the Omni for this big card. And, and this was a card that aired on HBO in, I believe, 1976. And, and keep in mind, uh, WWF had ran on MSG, but HBO for year after year in the early 70s and onward. And and all of a sudden, there's Vince the Omni with Gordon Sully. You know, could that have been the beginning of Vince saying, hey, you know, we're this huge success in New York. Maybe we're going to take over, <laughs> take over Atlanta someday. Maybe this was the kind of the, the, the beginning of Vince's thinking of like what what could be in the future. So uh, this expansion was only meant to happen at some point. It was it was inevitable. I mean, when cable TV became as big as it was and you could get WWF wrestling or WTBS wrestling in all of the homes, you know, what was the point of not touring there? I mean, and a lot, you know, a lot of people talk about how, you know, Vince McMahon is the one who did this. Hey, Ole Anderson was on Georgia TV in 1983 saying clear as a bell, wherever you're watching this, we're going to be coming there soon. Yeah, absolutely. It it definitely wasn't just Vince and what Vince did. It was uh, the activities of other promoters. So, I mean, look at look at Jim Crockett. I mean, I would put him right up there with Vince. I mean, he uh, basically the promotions like Florida. He raided Florida. He took Dusty. Dusty brought all his guys with him to the Mid Atlantic, and uh, you know Eddie Graham was left with pretty much nothing. And that promotion began to slowly die out. And um, you know, Central States was always bad, but. You know, he played a role in that, too. It just, um, Vince was by far not the only person involved in the end of the territories. No, I mean, Joe Blanchard had Southwest Championship Wrestling on USA Network, and he was saying the same thing Ole was saying, that, you know, wherever you're watching, we're going to be coming there soon. And Ole, you know, I've talked about this on Stick to Wrestling, Ole had that show in Altoona, Pennsylvania, which is, you know, clearly WWF territory in 1983. So, a national company became absolutely necessary. It was inevitable, and McMahon was just a guy smart enough to push all the right buttons. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, it, it had to happen, especially when you saw these huge markets that were just bereft of any wrestling at all. I mean, here you have the, the second biggest market in the country, Los Angeles, and that promotion, I mean, from the late 70s on, had been just dying this slow, slow death. And uh, Vince, uh, you know, eventually uh, partnered with LaBelle, and uh, eventually, you know, Vince uh, got involved. And, and, and the thing that, that none of the other promoters had the foresight to do, and, and they didn't have the bank account to do either, was do what Vince did and bought TV time throughout the country. And that, that proved to be a big uh, game changer compared to what Vern tried to do and what some of the other promoters tried to do is they wanted to go national as well. Yeah, it was, like I said, it was inevitable. Now, one thing that's cool about this podcast, you know, Steve has mentioned that he and I grew up in the WWF during this era. We paid close attention. On this podcast, we're going to talk about individual matches we're going to talk about complete cards including the, the television uh whatever took place on television we're going to talk about angles news uh we're going to provide details analysis and opinion on things that happen on a week-to-week basis on the wwf this is going to be fun uh, yeah it's definitely something that uh, i think hasn't been done before as far as uh, really focusing on this era of the wwf i mean uh, you can call it the Vince Jr. era, the Hulk era, the Golden era, some people call it. And it's something that really hasn't been addressed. And I'm glad that, uh, John, uh, we're going to have the opportunity to do that every other week. Now, Steve, yeah, let me, let's learn a little bit about you. Now, I, of course, now I'm going to start talking about myself. <laughs> I went to the <laughs> Boston Garden every single month from 1981, uh, middle of like May 1981, until I tapered off like uh, end of 85 when the show started airing on Nesson, so it wasn't as important to me to go see the show. I missed exactly one show because of a really bad snowstorm, January 1983. I also attended a lot of spot shows around the area. If a wrestling show was less than 30 minutes away in 1984, 1985, Chances are I went to it. Now, what's your background a little bit? Did you, you were in New York at this time, right? Right. I, I, I was in upstate New York. I was in Binghamton, which is up near Syracuse, uh, snow country. And uh, I, I actually um, found WWF in 76 when Bruno was the champion and uh, went to my first show in 77 uh, in Binghamton. We had a, you know, it's still there. It, they call it the Broome County Veterans Memorial Arena. And it's, it's basically a hockey arena. It sits uh, roughly, for wrestling, a sellout is approximately 6,700 people. In those early days, the first cards I went to, they drew usually in the range of maybe 1,500 to, um, you know, maybe the low 3,000s. As we get into this year that we're going to be talking about on the show, I know uh, uh, we had a card in the 84 where Piper faced Snuka and next show definitely drew over 4,000. And then, and then we eventually got our steady stream of the TV tapings, which sold the building out and, and we'd have a whole packed crowd of 6,700 fans. But uh, one thing I will add about going to Binghamton and seeing the shows there and of course watching all the MSG shows on uh, cable over the years too, with Binghamton, in those early years, with some exceptions, the cards were, were pretty much uh, very uh, blah. I mean, sometimes we had a, a card that was fairly loaded, but on, on the norm, you'd have a backland title defense. You would have 
a, uh, a solid tag team match. You'd have one other decent match, like let's say a uh, Greg Valentine against uh, Dominic Nanucci or something like that. And then you, you would have the obligatory three TV matches, which would be your uh, Gypsy Rodriguez against Steve King or matches of that, that category. So uh, where Vince's expansion really helped us was, especially in the Northeast, instead of having cards like that that could be rather ho-hum, we got, and I'll use that August of 1984 card, we had Piper versus Snuka. We had, um, I'm looking here at my uh, small print, uh, we had Tito Santana against, uh, uh, let's see here, uh, we had Ken Patera. I mean, we, we just had like like seven matches, and in every match was at least you know one or two good names. The cards were, I don't want to say loaded cards, but they had much more star power than the cards that we would uh, normally be used to in the pre-expansion era. All right. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and that sounds like the kind of card that we would get in like Worcester, Massachusetts or Providence, Rhode Island. Those are very comparable. Believe it or not, I absolutely loved those Steve King versus Frank the Gypsy Rodriguez matches because <laughs> I had no idea who was going to win. So that always made me very happy, as opposed to the Greg Valentine versus Steve King match where you absolutely know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those those matches, uh, I, I personally didn't care for them. But, uh, you know, the, the wrestling, I would say, you know, from our, our standpoint in that town, whether it's a B, B town or a C town, the, the talent just got better. I mean, I can remember in that time frame when talking more like 86, we had Scott McGee in prelims, and he was really talented, a really good underrated wrestler. We had other wrestlers uh, that came in, but, you know, we got to see the pretty much the whole roster at one point or another, uh, other than Bruno and a couple of other, uh, you know, Jesse and a couple of the other guys that uh, really were part-timers. We pretty much saw the entire roster over uh, that period of 84 to 87. Yeah, I feel lucky. I mean, I got to see all of the wrestlers, uh, all of the big stars of the 80s. I mean, everyone from every promotion. The biggest star I have, ne I never got to see live was Mr. Wrestling 2. Mm -hmm. And there's like a big drop off after that. So I consider myself a lucky guy. This episode that you're listening to is kind of an episode zero. We're going to talk about the events that took place leading into January 1st, 1984. And Steve, one thing I want to do when we're doing this podcast, because this will be fun, let's keep score of how many wrestlers Vince, the WWF hired from other promotions. I think Georgia is going to win this game, but the AWA is in the conversation. Oh, definitely, yeah. I, I think, uh, in my opinion, the AWA would probably win, but... Uh, yeah, you know, with the buyout and the Georgia and, and all the talent that they absorbed. Yeah, you're, you're right. It could go either way on that one. Well, the thing is, and, and this is what we're talking about leading in. In 1983, Vince t uh, hired a whole lot of guys from Georgia. So he kind of got a, a big time head start. And then the beginning of 84, he really started hitting the AWA with Hogan, Gene Okerlund, Dr. D. David Schultz, and not to get ahead of myself because we're going to talk about pre-1984 events here, but one of the fun things about tuning into WWF Wrestling in 1984 was let's see who Vince rated from the AWA this week. 
that was really the highlight because I mean, I mean, of the whole year, I mean, just, just the unpredictability. I mean, one week you have Buzz Sawyer with Captain Lou, one week you have the Freebirds, one week you have the, the angle with Captain Lou and Cindy Lauper. I mean, you never knew what was coming down the pike. And, and by the time you got to WrestleMania, it was almost like it had peaked out. I mean, uh, I mean, for some of us, I'm sure it was like, uh, you know, you you were bored by the time WrestleMania came because the stuff that led up to it, the War to Sell the Score and the other MTV things were so exciting that uh, WrestleMania was almost like a letdown uh, in some people's minds. Yeah, in my mind, it was not. I was I really it, it captured my imagination. The Cindy Lauper thing was just off the charts. No one would have ever seen that coming. I mean, we'll talk about this when the time comes. I mean, I was lucky enough to go out to a dinner with Bill after uh, during the uh, right before the New Jersey uh, Meadowlands show the when the NWA went there February 1984 and after was like there's no way this Cindy Lauper who is such a huge star is going to show up in Allentown Pennsylvania or wherever and do this wrestling thing and I believe you know, I mean he was speculating but I agreed with him and boom, you know, they and they did the one Piper's pit where they they no show where she no showed allegedly. And it was like, OK, there's there's the angle. And next week, there she is. Yeah, I mean, she she added, uh, you know, some definite star power to the show that it needed. And uh, the chemistry that she had, I mean, it wasn't just like a celebrity walked on and and and, and hey, we got a celebrity. It's exciting. There was legitimate chemistry that she had with Piper and with Captain Lou and, and Captain Lou uh, was really at his peak in 1984. I mean, uh, whether it was, you know, uh, uh, talking about the Samoans, but bashing them with the chair to lose the title straps or, yep. uh, or, or what was going on with Cindy Lauper. Uh, and then by the end of the year, he was, he was evolving into this good guy and, and almost having a feud with Piper. And it was just, it was just must see TV in that 1984 time frame. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna dissect dissect it for you. I expect this uh, project to go about 50 episodes, coming out once every two weeks. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Let's talk about the biggest story coming into 1984. Bob Backlund had been the WWF champion for almost six years, and let me frame that for everybody. Okay, Steve and I are about the same age. I Bob Backlund won the title in the February when I was in seventh grade. He lost it right after my freshman, my first freshman semester of college. That is forever <laughs> when you're that age. Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. When uh, when I got a call from somebody, somebody went to a house show in Binghamton. Maybe the, it had to be the week after that MSG card where Backlund lost to the Sheik. And I, I guess they announced to the local crowd at the arena that, oh, by the way, you know, the Iron Sheik has defeated Bob Backlund in Madison Square Garden. So a friend of mine gets on the phone with me that following week and says, oh, you'll never guess what happened and and tells me. And I and I was completely stunned. And I think, John, you said it on another podcast that you were stunned, too, because, you know, at that time, if you thought that Backlund could lose, which seemed almost inconceivable, you thought like, oh, Morocco or Slaughter, one of these really major, major threats. And uh, and it turned out to be the Iron Sheik, who was, you know, a very respected wrestler, uh, especially from his earlier stint as Hussein Arab, uh, just a great uh, suplex artist. And uh, 
you know, we didn't really think of him at that time as this brutal brawler that he would end up to being in his uh, other, another big highlight of 1984, his feud with Sergeant Slaughter. But um, he just, um, he was a great choice to be champion, even if it was just a temporary champion. He was, and I'll, I'll tell the story about how I found out that Iron Sheik became champion. The When the television that aired uh, explaining that Sheik had lost the belt, or Sheik had won the belt, excuse me, um, I was up in Montreal. <laughs> me and my friends went up to Montreal for New Year's, and I get home late on New Year's Day because we got stuck at the border, of course, and I'm thinking, okay, I drop off my friend at his house. I'm going to go grab some food, and I'm coming right back to his place to watch the Orange Bowl, and which turned out to be one of the greatest games of all time. And his stepdad, who was also a big wrestling fan, calls me. And he says, I'm going to be there in about an hour, but he can't wait because <laughs> I want to hear this news right away. <laughs> and he says, Bob Backlund lost the title. Um, and I was like, you're kidding me. And he's like, no, guess who he lost it to? And I'm like, <laughs> uh, Mass Superstar. Nope. Sergeant Slaughter, nope. Don Morocco, nope. Uh, I'm like, I can't even think of the Sheik's name. And I wind up guessing Morocco and Slaughter twice. And he finally says the Iron Sheik. I'm like, no way. This has got to be a rib. And little did I know that Hulk Hogan had signed with the WWF and was finishing up his Japan tour. And he was going to be the next big thing. And we talked about it a little bit on another podcast. Um, dedicated an entire episode to it. And that superstar had once said that he asked Pat Patterson, I think, like, why did you make Sheik champion and not me? And Patterson told him that, um, well, Bob wanted to lose to a guy who had a real legit uh, wrestling background. And I just don't believe that's true. I think Patterson just told Edie something better uh, to make him feel not, you know, rejected. Oh, well, here's why you didn't get it. <laughs> but I think, you know, it was as simple as this. The, the next guy who fought uh, Backlund at Madison Square Garden was getting the title, and he was just going to transition it right to Hogan. Right, right. And. You know, you know, the funny thing about um, uh, that whole transition, and, it, and it's in Backlund's book, he mentions, uh, he did, he does mention that, that whole uh, scenario that, oh, you know, Backlund would lose, but it had to be to an amateur. He said that was completely a farce. Yeah. He, he had no hand in that. But he did say in the book, too, that uh, the, 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 the transition was, was explained to him in a very routine way. It was basically like... Uh, he saw he saw uh, Vince Senior at the uh, at I don't know if it was Garden or one of the shows uh, a few weeks in advance, and they basically said, uh, "Baba, come here, I've got to tell you something." And and he just basically says, uh, "You know, at the next Garden show, you're going to be dropping the tile to Sheik, and uh, and that and that's it." And and it wasn't anything dramatic or hey, you know, I've got something really big I got to tell you. It was more like, "Yeah, come over here, I just got to tell you something," and and that's it. And uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, I, I never imagined that it would be uh, told in such a routine fashion, but apparently that's how it really happened. Sometimes that's the best way to tell, give someone bad news, though. Just tell them, boom, this is what's going on, and maybe tell them, you know, Bob, you, you've been great for six years, but we just need to go in a diff different direction, and see you later. Yeah, and he, and he was a good foot soldier. I mean, he was the perfect guy for Vince Sr. He did everything he asked for, and you know, it, it's kind of it's just kind of sad. I, I guess maybe I'm too soft hearted, but it's just like uh, 
you know, you're done. We'll, we'll see you later. You know, but, <laughs> but, but he, st- but he stuck around, you know, he was around for another eight or eight months or so. Uh, you know, when you see the results of 84, you do see him on a lot of WWF shows, even though they really didn't do much with him, but, uh, he did stick around a bit longer. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the movie Moneyball, which is actually a very good movie, even if you're not a baseball fan, where you just walk up to a guy and say, hey, you know, you've been traded to Colorado. That's it. Because <laughs> there's really no way to soft show it. That's true. Yeah, I, I guess in that regard, it was probably the best thing for Backlund and for business. And now, Steve, what was your feeling on Bob Backlund? Let's say the day before you found out he won the belt, like, were you happy with him as champion? Were you tired of him as champion? Were you somewhere in the middle? I, I was I was very tired of him as being champion. I, I would say that uh, um, when, I be- when I became a fan in 1976 and the following year uh, between the Bruno and the Billy Graham era, uh, I was probably at my zenith of being a wrestling fan. When Backlund came in on the scene, uh, I kept going to shows. You know, saw a lot of backland defenses over the years into the early 80s. But by about 82, I, I watched wrestling every week. That never stopped. But my interest as far as like buying magazines, as far as, um, you know, uh, going to live cards, it had really fizzled. Uh, when Billy Graham made his uh, infamous Kung Fu comeback in 1982, uh, they, they had a match in October at the arena. And I went to see them. And I was, you know, again, rooting for Billy. And. And, you know, as, as he kind of faded out, uh, in, in Backlund, you know, was still there as the champ in 83. It was, again, my interest was on the wane, just kind of, you know, kept watching every week, but, you know, not like interested in going to the matches anymore. But when this whole thing happened, this, all this change all at once, uh, Hey, Hogan came in, Hey, we've got, you know, Donis and Murdoch, we've got all these newcomers coming in. It, it really kind of lit a fire under me. And then being the old old school fan, the old Bruno fan, they, they ended up bringing him back uh, by the end of 84, like I think the end of the summer of 84, you know, with David, of course. And and that even got my interest going even more. And then he started wrestling in 85, and Bruno did. And, and of course, uh, it just, you know, wrestling got exciting again. Everything was kind of back to the way it should, it should be in my my wrestling fandom with Bruno wrestling and we even got Billy Graham back in the WWF for a, for a brief window in 80, 87. But, uh, yeah, I was ready for a change. I really was. Yeah, I I mean, like I said, you know, from seventh grade into my freshman year of college, I mean, Backlund had been the champion and it was still working. But Bob was starting to get booed in some key cities. Um, I have, you know, v, uh, DVDs of his matches in Philadelphia. And in the in 83, he really started to fall off. I think the uh, the emergence of Superfly Jimmy Snuka as the biggest star in the WWF, plus Bob was starting to get behind the times. He had that crew cut. He had these those bad leisure suits. He'd been around forever. (laughs) I was just so tired of him. No, I I, I was, too. I mean, his time really had come and gone. And I guess it was probably just the. Um, the, the comfortable feeling that Senior had with him probably didn't want to change. But meanwhile, in the background, there's Vince maneuvering. And Vince is, you know, working to get uh, on TV in these other markets and markets where there hadn't been any wrestling. And 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 he's he's doing all the right things. And, and he's thinking to himself, 
you know, if I just get the right guy to replace Backlund, you know, somebody who's larger, larger than life, somebody who, uh, it, it, you know, so, sometimes people call Vince the Walt Disney of wrestling, and for him to pick Hulk Hogan, the the personification of all American wrestlers at that point, even maybe more so than Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, just the look of Hulk Hogan, this this huge uh, person, this, this uh, movie star, essentially. Uh, it really changed everything. I mean, uh, all bets were off at that point. It, it, they definitely were. And um, the thing is, in 1984, Vince McMahon changed everything about that promotion. And it really took a lot of guts because the WWF was coming off an absolutely killer 1983. They they were, you know, I remember reading a story about um about world class and they had their first hundred thousand dollar gate in nineteen eighty-two for a Kerry Von Eric versus Ric Flair match. Mm-hmm. And everyone in the promotion was, you know, celebrating wildly. Oh my God, we had a hundred thousand dollar house. The WWF would have hundred thousand dollar houses I mean, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week, sometimes twice on the same day. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, another thing that, that always uh, interests me about the whole idea about uh, Vince going national and, uh, you know, obviously, you know, knowing what we know now, uh, Vince had a real uh, love for his father and appreciation for his father's place in the wrestling world and uh, really admired his father. But but. I, I wonder what Vince himself thought about this old, um, the NWA uh, circuit, the whole idea of we have this uh, um, consortium of promoters that help each other and we have a convention and we pick a champion. And I mean, I mean, meanwhile, you know, Vince, Vince's company or Vince Sr.'s company had run so effortlessly uh from the bruno days the billy graham days even when they transitioned to backland and maybe the houses weren't the best at first with all the talent he had the andres and the dusties and the mill maskeris uh the, the 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 box office picked up rather quickly and uh all those big buildings he had in the northeast besides the garden you know boston garden and pittsburgh and philly and all these big markets i mean I think Vince was probably looking at these territories and thinking like, this is such an archaic system of, you know, I, I mean, it, you know, good for them. And I'm glad they're my father's friends, but, but this system is so archaic and, you know, it's time for something new. And he brought wrestling to the masses. He, he changed everything. He, he did. And you mentioned, you know, there was a void in certain cities and I'm, and you mentioned Los Angeles, which is a giant city. Mm-hmm. And they did not have wrestling. And in 1982, Vince put his wrestlers on a plane and sent them to Los Angeles. They also went to San Diego. And to me, that should have been a giant warning sign to mm-hmm. the rest of the world. Because if Vince is willing to fly his guys across the country, if he's willing, you know, he's willing to go to Los Angeles, why is he not willing to stop, make a stop in Houston or Chicago and run a show there? Oh, absolutely. And, and I did some research. I looked at some of the numbers. I mean, the first show they ever did in San Diego was back in March of 83. They drew 5,000 fans. And I, I think that they realized that they'd be going to these markets and, and would probably take a beating the first uh, maybe a half dozen times they went there. But I think he, he realized that he could, uh, once he had his TV in those markets, he would wear them down and, and you know he would become the thing. 
And, and in 83, he didn't have Hogan yet, so he would mix up these cards. He'd have, like, maybe uh, Snuka against Morocco headlining, or he'd have, like, uh, uh, Andre in a tag team, or Andre winning a battle royal. I mean, he, he, he offered all kinds of uh, matchups. And on the West Coast, a lot of his WWF guys were well-known from being in Shire's promotion. He had guys like uh, Pat Patterson in Morocco and... Uh, Buddy Rose, who had all been stars for Roy Shire. So they were making a name for the promotion in 83, um, failing in some ways, but succeeding in others and kind of uh, establishing a footprint for the WWF. Uh, compare it to uh, Vern, who tried to do the same thing in San Francisco, but uh, I think Vern's, Vern's guys were so much older and just look, looking longer in the tooth. A lot of uh, Vince's guys were still, in, you know, in their prime or approaching their prime. Especially guys like Snook and Morocco were at the top of their game. So it really um, it was the beginning of the national expansion. That's the thing. They not only had Backlund, who had credibility just because he had the belt, but he did. Vince had Andre the Giant. He had Jimmy Snooker, who was huge back then, and yeah, he had made a name at the, in the West Coast as well. As the year went on. The ninth, the year of 1983 went on. Vince, the WWF had made its debut in Detroit, Cincinnati, and Dayton. Now those were all big cities, and they were all Georgia Championship Wrestling cities. After Ole Anderson decided that he was going to invade those cities. Now there's there's two stories out there. I don't know which one is true. One of them is that yeah he did it uh, in with cooperation from Ed Farhat. The other story is he just went and Farhat, Farhat got screwed. I don't know which story is true. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the wonderful book by, I uh, can't remember his name now, yeah, Tim, uh, Tim Hornbaker, the Death of the Territories book does touch on all these things. And I think he does kind of uh, address this issue and says that Farhat basically got screwed. And, um, you know, the, the thing is, is that... Uh, Vince was just getting in all these new markets, like you just said, Detroit, Cincinnati, Dayton, uh, eventually St. Louis uh, the week after uh, Backlund's title loss. They did their first big St. Louis show, and there was just a demand. I mean, <laughs> I mean, even St. Louis, a great wrestling town, uh, uh, they had uh, you know, Larry Manistick had put on some outlaw shows. There was the old uh, St. Louis Wrestling Club there, and you know Harley Race and uh, Geigel and his partners. Uh, they had been putting on shows there. I mean, they even had, uh, I know, uh, I think it was January of 84, Flair and Brody sold out, the, I think, the Checker Dome for a huge show in St. Louis. So it wasn't like Vince didn't have any opposition in St. Louis, but I think that uh, that area, that market had been so underserviced for such a long time, there was really a demand for more wrestling in St. Louis. Well, I read Larry Matisic's book about the history of St. Louis, and you know, Larry, of course, felt like, uh, Geigel and Race, et cetera, were, were not running St. Louis properly. So he kind of started his own outlet, outlaw group, excuse me. And then at the end of 1983, and this, you know, amazingly historic town of St. Louis, historic wrestling town, uh, Larry Matisic brings in Vince McMahon's guys and they do a taping. And, you know, the wrestling from the chase is now a WWF show. This is like the very end of 1983. Yeah, I mean, and that really um, was the the first kind of glimpse of what would be the beginning of the changes within the WWF, like seeing 
TV from new markets. I mean, we never seen a WWF St. Louis show before. I mean, there'd never been one before. Right. And, and, and it was, but it was exciting. And, and I know we'd all like to piss on battle Royals, but that one battle Royal that John Studd won with Andre and Hogan and a whole bunch of big names in there was, was a really uh, a wonderful battle Royal compared to the average battle Royal. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, I know. Usually I'm not a Battle Royal guy, but I do remember that was a good one. Um, the WWF also ran Fairfax, Virginia. Now, this is towards the end of 1983. It is a suburb of Washington, D.C., but it is clearly Jim Crockett's territory. And, you know, by this point, you're figuring out that the WWF, like, it, the, the bound, it, it no longer is going to recognize boundaries and if i'm jim crockett i call vince and say vince i know it's just fairfax virginia and it's one show but i leave washington dc alone for you and if you come back in here i'm looking at washington i'm looking at baltimore like these are big cities and you're farting around fairfax well i'm glad you mentioned that and mentioned jim crockett because this this is uh, what I'm about to say is, is I think, the impact of the national expansion for the workers themselves. Um, and I, I just heard this information on a podcast this uh, past week. Um, first, Mike Rotundo was talking about his career, and he was talking about how Dusty put uh, Mike Rotundo and Barry Windham together in Florida. And, and after they established themselves in Florida, they went to work for the Crockett's together in 1984. And listen to this. This is an eye opener. He said, Rotunda said that uh, in 1984, they were making approximately $250 a week to $500 a week working for Crockett. The following year, when they were doing big business in the WWF, they were making $5,000 a week. And uh, in another shoot I had heard uh, from Jim Brunzel, he said that at their peak period with WWF, he was making $5,000 a week. And when it kind of slowed down in the late 80s, they were making about $2,000 a week. So um, what I'm getting at with all this is Mike Rotunda and Jim Brunzel were never near the very top of the WWF's pecking order. But because the promotion became a steamroller from 84 into 85, and everything that came with MTV and getting on Saturday night's main event on NBC and the beginning of WrestleMania, even these mid-card guys were making more money than they could have ever imagined. And, uh, and they were, you know, I mean, Jim Crockett put on a hell of a show and a hell of a fight. And if you wanted more wrestling than showbiz, that was probably your, you know, what you'd want to spend your money on. But Vince really delivered, and, and Vince really uh, gave the guys a healthy paycheck. Barry Windham tells the exact same story, how he was making $200, $300 a week when he first started with JCP. And I just wonder, like, what actually happened if they were if he was just in for TV and hadn't started full-time yet, or if they were just cheapskating the guy. But Bar- Barry Windham said the exact same thing, and when the WWF came calling for him you know, there was nothing to think about I, I think what it was you know again just from a fan perspective i think uh unless you got into that elite uh, like dusty's core group of guys i mean even Ar- i mean arn anderson has said this uh in those early days with crockett when he was just becoming something uh he got some promises of some payoffs and he got shorted on the payoffs and 
they basically said, hey, you're, you're a kid, you're new, you know, uh, you have to pay your dues. And, and he stuck with it. And eventually he got in that core group. But if you were, were not in that core group of, of conservative headliners or whatever, you were going to get these average, uh, disappointing payoffs. Uh, and I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I've heard Hulk Hogan, you know, may, was making between ten dollars and $15,000 a week, you know, pretty consistently. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about cable television. WWF had been on WORTV forever, um, and that was on a lot of cable stations. That, that's something that gets forgotten over wrestling history because WOR wasn't around much longer after I mean, they disappeared, I think, sometime in the 80s, but they were big in the early 80s. And they got we all got the midnight show of WWF wrestling on on WR Channel 9 out of New York. Then the WWF takes over Southwest Championship Wrestling spot on USA Network and compared to Southwest Championship Wrestling, like the promotion, I'm not ragging on it. But the WWF looked so major league in every possible way. They had, I mean, their the production values they offered as opposed to Southwest Championship Wrestling were day. The biggest Southwest stars, Tully Blanchard, before he became a big star, you know, he was a, a big fish in a small pond. You had Bruiser Bob Sweetan, you had the Sheep Herders, you had Scott Casey, Eric Embry. Now it's the WWF, and the first three episodes were exclusively dedicated to, you know, the first week was nothing but Bob Backlund matches. Second week was nothing but Andre the Giant matches. Third week was nothing but Jimmy Snuka matches. I mean, that just blows away what was being previously aired by the other promotion. Yeah, you know, I I have to admit, I have a soft spot in my heart for that promotion, Joe Blanchard promotion. Oh, I like it. Yeah, yeah, I, I really liked it too, and and, uh, I, and that was in that period where my interest in wrestling had definitely kind of gone away. Uh, I mean, I wasn't buying magazines, so I didn't really know what was going on in other promotions. But uh, I, I, what I liked about it, I mean, it had kind of an outlaw sense to it. I mean, you had guys like, uh, like you said, Scott Casey and uh, the the terrible uh, Bob Sweetan, and uh, you know, but good workers, so uh, and good, believable matches. And uh, uh, but but when Vince came on, you're absolutely right. I mean, those three shows that focused on the three biggest stars at the time uh, were kind of a, a a wonderful introductory for people who maybe hadn't watched. I mean, they had been airing the the house shows from Landover, Maryland, and also from the Garden on USA for many years up until that point. But then all of a sudden, Vince has got a show on uh, USA, All-American. Uh, and then, of course, uh, and we'll get to this in future episodes of our show, but uh, in the future, he would debut TNT, which became a very uh, uh, integral part, at least in the early uh, years of TNT. Uh, by the end, I think it was just a complete waste of time. But oh, yeah. it, it, became a, it, it began at least as kind of an interesting uh, show that had uh, some variety to it. Yeah, now the the USA Network show, which was on Saturday mornings, I believe at 11 o'clock, once we get past those first three shows, now this show is, it's a collection of some of the best stars from all of the promotions, and it looks like Vince is putting these guys on as a favor to the other promoters. Oh, sure, Bill Watts, we'll have, we'll have Butch Reed on, on this show, we'll have Junkyard Dog on this show. Oh, the Florida wrestlers, Dusty Rhodes, Billy Jack Haynes, Barry Windham. Yeah, we'll put them on USA Network. And it looked like it was going to be a a best of show. Of course, there was no one from Georgia. But anyway, (laughs) um, 
let's talk about, I mean, and to that turned out to be a little bit of a Trojan horse. Like, you know, yeah, Junkyard Dog is on USA Network wrestling on Mid-South for Mid-South Wrestling. Pretty soon he would be with the WWF. That, that went for a lot of the wrestlers. Yeah, yeah, and I think the Von Erichs were definitely in Vince's sight, and I think, uh, I don't know if you had posted this, John, but I think one of our uh, people uh, with our Katie Vanguard had posted a video of Vince talking about the Von Erichs uh, not coming into the World Wrestling Federation, but he was hinting at it or alluding to it, and of course we didn't really get anybody in until Kerry came in at the end of the 80s, and Kevin came in for like uh, maybe a weekend. But, uh, but but yeah, they did feature stars from other promotions, and that was really exciting. I mean, I, I wasn't getting the Observer then. I didn't discover the Observer for another three years, but that was such an exciting time to see these stars from other promotions, and you're wondering, why are they being featured? Are they eventually coming in? Is there going to be a partnership with the NWA or with these other promotions? It was just an exciting time to just wonder, what is going on here? Yeah, I mean, cable was changing things, and and my own thought was that this was just a te- going to be just a television show where wrestlers from various promotions are featured. And boy, I was wrong. I'll tell you that. Let's talk <laughs> a little bit about what was going on in the WWF in 1983 with Don Morocco, magnificent Morocco, as Intercontinental Champion. Um, he had held, he had been in the WWF mm, all of 1981, or at least since I want to say March or April. He went back home for a while in 1982 he was back by the end of 1982 i thought he was going to be back on for the title and he did not he won the intercontinental title from pedro morales in january 1984 and he's basically held it all year i was a big morocco fan but i was like okay he's had the title for a long time and a switch is coming soon what was what were you thinking steve I, I, you know, it, it was kind of weird because, you know, he had been beaten by Backlund so many times. It was like, well, if he hasn't won it by now, he probably never will. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, 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 you know, looking back now, uh, Morocco in that period, uh, I'd say from maybe late 70s Florida to about 83 in WWF, he, he was just such a great talent. And, and I, I heard him on a recent shoot interview say that he, uh, uh, he would never have let himself become NWA champion, even though he definitely had the ability to be one, uh, because he actually had a family and wanted to see his family periodically. And he knew that guys like Harley Race or Ric Flair that had the uh, belt, um, they didn't care if they were wrestling on Christmas night. They they really didn't care. They'd rather make the money and have uh, fun or whatever. And Morocco wanted to be with his family. So I, I thought that was really uh, cool to hear. And, and Morocco was so over as a heel. Uh, had they had they decided to turn him into a baby face in uh, say uh, eighty four, and I know he did take some time off that year, um, that that could have probably worked too because he was so over as a hill. Usually, if you flip him over, uh, the fans kind of really into you. So, yeah, I, I, ironically enough, I just saw that shoot interview like forty eight hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, Morocco was like, you know, yeah, people talk about how I could have been NWA champion or WWF champion. I didn't want it. <laughs> He's just like, I did not want that lifestyle, which is fine. Whatever makes you happy, dude. Um, but yeah, by uh, by December 31st, 1983, I was definitely looking up and down the WWF roster, 
saying, okay, who's going to be the next Intercontinental Champion? We would soon find out, and I would be there live. I was thinking Jimmy Snuka, but he didn't really fit the bill. Plus, Morocco had already ended his feud with him and come out with the title. Um, I was thinking maybe Ivan Putski. I don't know. I wasn't thinking the, the guy who got it, but we'll, we'll get into that when it happens. Major change in the WWF, October 1983. Since 1974... The, the constant in the WWF were the major heels, every single one was managed by either Captain Lou Albano, Fred Blassie, or the Grand Wizard of Wrestling. If you didn't, and with the exception of Larry Zbysko, if you didn't have a manager, we knew not to take you seriously. That all changed when the Grand Wizard passed away October 1983, and it was just, I mean, to me, it was devastating. It's like, you know, he was... I mean, he was someone who was part of my life for, I started watching at the same time you did, Steve, 1976, and this guy was part of my life. He, I, I listened to him every single Saturday. No, I, I, I agree with you on that. I remember the uh, episode began with, it was Vince and Pat Patterson, and they were standing there, and, and Vince, uh, you know, said, uh, you know, the, the Grand Wizard of Wrestling has, has passed away, and and said a few words very briefly, and uh, and they mentioned what an impact he had on wrestling, and and I felt so bad. I, I mean, I didn't know any of the backstory or the reason why, or didn't have any inside information. And no there one did. Yeah, there and even now there hasn't really been a lot of information, but uh, he was he was such a uh, big part of the show, and uh, and and from what I gather behind the scenes uh, over the years, I've learned. I mean, he's the godfather to one of Morocco's kids, and. I mean, he was really loved, and he, and he had been, um, and I didn't know this until probably six months ago, uh, he even promoted some shows in Boston uh, for WWF uh, back in the early 70s with his partner, Bobby, uh, beautiful Bobby, and uh, so so he had done everything. I mean, he had, he had been Abdullah Farouk with the Sheik, he had been important in the Sheik's promotion uh, all over the world, really, as Abdullah Farouk, uh, huge in the WWF, he promoted he announced with Vince at ringside a couple of times. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he he was involved in some of the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, I don't know if he was uh, uh, doing any booking or doing any uh, other than the early seventies, but uh, he was he's such a beloved figure, and it, it was a terrible uh, time uh, if you're a longtime fan like you and I were. Yeah, my understanding was that that Grand Wizard would have been on the he has a job for life list. Uh, well, Albano didn't last on that list, but guys like <laughs> Mr. Fuji, Fred Blassie, uh, they were gonna, they were going to get taken care of, and he was definitely going going to get taken care of. Yeah, and and you know, and and to Captain Lou's credit, uh, had he uh, not been uh, uh, you know so fortunate to get all these uh, because of the Cindy Lauper angle and all all that happened with wrestling in the mid eighties, you know, he got TV roles and movie roles and. Uh, the Super Mario show and, and things like that allowed Captain Lou to really uh, walk away from wrestling. But he came back to wrestling and did work for Vince again. Uh, he didn't need to be like a lifelong employee, kind of like how Blassie did. But um, he was welcomed back with open arms, even after you know a million uh, firings by Vince or uh, Vince's father. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, allegedly Albano was a little bit, a little bit crazy behind the scenes and wasn't as respectful to toward Vince Jr. as he was Vince Sr. Now we had new tag team champions coming into 1984, uh, November 1983, and what I thought was a really stunning uh, 
what's the word, an, an upset. I did not see this one coming. Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson defeat the Samoans for the tag team titles. The Samoans were champions for about as long as your typical heel tag team was. But I, Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson were both stars. Usually the babyface champion was one guy who was an established star like Ivan Putski and Dino Bravo. And the guy, the next guy is someone who's not yet an established star like uh, Tito Santana or a guy who's past his prime like Dominic DiNucci. You had Tony Gurria and Larry Zbysko, neither of whom were really big stars at the time. You had Rick Martel, big star, with Tony Gurria, not big star. And they, they had set it up so it looked like the Invaders were going to be the next tag team champions. And it really looked like they just changed plans at the last minute. They're like, no, we're going to go with two big established stars and not these two really small guys who looked like they could never survive against the Samoans. Well, I, I recently saw some of the uh, matches with Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas for, for probably the first time in like 20 years or 30 years. And uh, you, you see uh, Rocky Johnson, to me, looked like he was really in the zone. I, I know he was nearing the end of his uh, peak period and probably past his peak per- period, but Tony Atlas just seemed lost. He just seemed like uninterested in the whole thing. Uh, maybe he saw himself as a single star and that maybe being a tag team was beneath him. I mean, maybe. he had teamed with, with SD Jones before. I remember that. But but Rocky Johnson really uh, uh, knew how to sell and really knew how to work the crowd. And he was like a pro's pro. And Tony just seemed lost. And, and uh, I know we've talked about this on other podcasts, but Tony uh, just made some poor choices and ended up getting fired and the tag team was done. And, and before you know it, Rocky Johnson was gone. I think he came back briefly in 85 and ended up in Memphis and ended up in even Southern California championship wrestling. Oh and, man. And yeah, you know, so he really hit rock bottom, but uh, uh, it's just, um, it, it's just interesting to look back on it now. And Rocky Johnson is just, um, I think he's one of those guys that, um, I don't want to say he should be in the Observer Hall of Fame, but definitely deserves some consideration. No, he was a huge star. Rocky was a guy who, in the late 70s, it would not have surprised me if I opened up a magazine and saw that he had won the NWA title. Uh, Tony Atlas was a guy who I, I know now that he was not a good enough worker to hold the NWA title. When I saw him in Georgia in 1983 and they had him in a feud with Ric Flair, you know, I absolutely thought that Tony Atlas could be NWA champion. So, like I said, we've got two major stars, and I guess it it bears mentioning that these two did not get along. And I mean that when Tony says, I didn't get along with Rocky, and when, when Rocky says, I didn't get along with Tony, those are the two guys who would know. Yeah, I think I think Rocky Johnson had a long career, and uh, and even though he made some weird choices, like I know the stuff about his autobiography with Scott Teal was a little bit uh, unsettling. Yeah. Uh, but, but but he he other than that, I mean he uh, I think he was a pro's pro in the ring, and uh, I think he handled himself as a professional. And I think Tony, uh, even though he had been a star for maybe six years by that point, even longer, um, he just still was. Uh, immature and selfish, and uh, he wasn't doing the things to make the team last. 
No, I, and in fairness, and I agree with all the good things you said about Rocky Johnson. Tony is not the first guy who didn't like Rocky. Supposedly the book on Rocky Johnson was Rocky felt like there was only room for one black wrestler per promotion or one black baby face per promotion, and he was going to be it. And if you were another African-American wrestler on the roster with Rocky, like he immediately took a disliking to you. And I don't want to say tried to make your life miserable, but having someone hating you for just being there kind of does make your life miserable. Yeah, I, I, I hadn't heard that before, and I could definitely see how that could create some friction. Yeah, no, I've, I've heard it from more than one place. Now, the WWF had started its own magazine and had banned non-company photographers from ringside. Uh, I want to say this happened spring of 1983. Uh, they launched Victory Magazine, and this set off a mini-war between the WWF and the After Magazines. And let's just be honest. I mean, I have heard that the W the WOR show by itself was drawing a, a million viewers per week. And this is a show that's on at midnight, okay? Never mind. God knows how many show people are watching on WLVI in Boston and whatever channel they were on in Philadelphia and Baltimore, Pittsburgh, and all points in between. I mean, I'm guessing it's probably going to be over 5 million people watching that show every week. It wouldn't surprise me if it was 10 million. Now you've got the after magazines. They certainly don't have anywhere near a million magazines being bought. And they're fighting a war against the WWF in 1983. And I mean, even at the time I knew, like, for example, they declassified Bob Backlund as a world's heavyweight champion. Like forever, they recognized NWA, AWA, and WWF. And they're now telling us that WWF is no longer a world champion. Uh, they're writing negative stuff about the WWF. But the, at the end of the day, it's like throwing snowballs to the tank. <laughs> Absolutely. And it was just it was just a, a ludicrous uh, idea because, you know, going back uh, 20, 30 years uh, through all of the after magazines, it was, uh, you know, Bruno on the cover or Billy Graham on the cover, the stars of the WWF. And even into and through the Backland era, there were usually the WWF guys were featured with with some exceptions. So now here they are uh, biting the hand that feeds them. Well, the, the, yeah, the, the handle, though, had already stopped feeding him. It was like, look, <laughs> we're running you guys out of business. <laughs> and I, I can't blame Stanley Wester and Bill After for being like, oh, geez, they're trying to run us out of business after we've had this great relationship. But it just goes to show you, like, Vince, he wanted it all. He wanted, you know, at this point, he was starting to do more merchandise. He was starting to do, like, um, uh, he was putting out his own magazine. I mean, if the WWF could produce it, then, and they were going to produce it. They were going to try to make money off it, and they didn't want the competition out there. You know, it, it's funny the um, um, the whole declassifying of the WWF title during the Backlund era, and, and they tried to blame it on. Well, you know, the reason that we're going to declassify the title is Bob doesn't wrestle any of the scientific wrestlers, and uh, and and you know, it's funny that you know a lot of our fans, uh, whether you call them smart fans or marks, I think. Uh, I know some fans that meant something to them because I've seen people post on the internet about it to this day. Like, well, gee, I remember when the WWF belt got declassified. <laughs> They're still talking about it. Oh um, yeah. But 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 what I think what I think was was even more interesting 
Um, Norman Keitzer's magazine, so which had been the official uh, magazine that you would get at a live event, uh, and of course uh, Wrestling News, and of course uh, Brian Last uh, owns all these wonderful things now. Yes, <laughs> but, uh, but the uh, uh, Keitzer in his magazines, he he really took offense to it, and and in 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 his magazines where they would cover every territory conceivable. Instead of the old like WWF, oh, this is what's going on in the WWF or the Northeast, he would say McMahon wrestling. <laughs> he would he would put that. Uh, that's how he would call the WWF McMahon wrestling. Yeah, and he and he usually would go on and like a, a bit of a tirade and talk about how uh, oh you know this this the terrible atrocity called WrestleMania happened and. Uh, and he talks about well, you know, uh, you can buy it here in this magazine for thirty nine ninety five on the ad on page twenty seven. But you know, I hate the WWF or I hate McMahon wrestling. It was kind of funny. It, it was, and it was a, a big shock to me um, when this all happened, and I, I couldn't understand why it was happening. I mean, I you know, even as a seventeen year old, I could see through like Bill After wine, you know making all this noise about you know i mean you could tell something personal happened and not to get ahead of 1983 but how ludicrous was it in 1985 when the after magazines were saying that hulk hogan was not a world heavyweight champion oh yeah i mean mean, hulk hogan was wrestling i mean hulk hogan uh, on NBC, I mean, uh, you know, even if you like the NWA better and Ric Flair better, I mean, you had to acknowledge that Hulk Hogan and all the WWF characters were larger than life and they had their own cartoon show on CBS and, um, they were definitely in the conversation. You couldn't, uh, not, uh, mention them. No, absolutely not. And, you know, like I said, even at that age, I was like, okay, you guys are just being crazy saying that, you know, Bob Backlund's no longer a world champion because he traveled to Houston and wrestled Samoan Alpha. I mean, you know, (laughs) and just because he doesn't wrestle the scientific guys, like I knew that's not what fans wanted to see. Even at a young age, I knew people wanted to see Backlund against, you know, Greg Valentine, Killer Khan, Angelo Mosca, not against Ivan Putski and Chief J. Strongbow. Oh yeah, and and he even did. I mean, if for for us uh, bean counters here, I mean, he even did wrestle Tony Atlas. I don't know if it was before or after his title loss, but he did wrestle him. So I mean, he did wrestle a scientific wrestler. So uh, you got to give him points for that. I think that was in Baltimore, in November '83, after Atlas won a battle royal. So that's that's definitely a huge curveball. But right. yeah, I mean. You know, obviously, none of this made any sense, and I knew something personal was going on. And, yeah, I guess, you know, personal – I mean, like I said, after is like, oh, my God, you know, you are you guys are trying to run us out of business after we've been – we've had a great relationship. And, yeah, McMahon stopped using Kiter to uh, use his programs, which, if, if you think about it, it makes more sense to do them in-house. If people are going to buy this thing, you know ha- – you control this way. The WWF controls the content. They control the price, and they they keep all the profit. Yeah, I mean the, the old the old programs sometimes had no rhyme or reason. I, I remember this one, uh, and I think it may have even been posted on our uh, the old Stick to Wrestling uh, Facebook group. But there was this one uh, insert for MSG show where they said uh, 
okay, here's our WWF top 10. And it had in there people who hadn't been in the WWF, like it had Chavo Guerrero, it had Bill Watts, it had yeah. uh, all, all these names. And, and, it, and it looked good, uh, but but it didn't make any sense. No. <laughs> and I mean, the, the Kaiser mags, I love them. I think they were better than the after mags in a lot of ways. But at the same time, the, the after mags had more, better and more recent photos. Like, you know, Kaiser would have an article about uh, Don Morocco, let's say, and they'd use a picture from like five or six years ago. Right, right. <laughs> Well, well, I, I will say this, and, and I'm, I was really happy to hear when uh, Brian last purchased the uh, the archives of Wrestling News because um, I can't think of a better publication as far as one that covered like virtually every territory. I mean, worldwide has so much detail and so much results. Uh, I mean, it's kind of hard news that a real wrestling fan would like. I will say about after his magazines, I guess this Haiti had with Vince actually help the magazines become better because they did get a little bit more edgier and they moved away from some of those goofy, goofy articles they used to publish. Like, Oh yeah. You know, uh, Stan Stasiak reveals why he had to lose to Bruno because, uh, of a dying kid in the hospital, you know, <laughs> something like that instead of, uh, something closer to reality. Yeah. Now, one last thing before we wrap up, we have a new star in the WWF in 1983. I am convinced he would have been managed by the Grand Wizard had the Grand Wizard not passed away. Uh, Paul Orndorff had been wrestling in Georgia in 1982 and 1983. He was one of their biggest stars, national heavyweight champion, got the uh, got the feud with Ric Flair. I mean, he looked like uh, a potential NWA or future WWF champion. He disappears for a while. Um not wrestling in Georgia, and then he resurfaces in the WWF as a heel. He had been a babyface in Georgia. Now he's the bad guy, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. He's got the fancy robes, and we're seeing a guy who I thought looked like a potential major star. Paul Orndorff, um, when you look back on him now, especially that era of WWF from end of 83 to I'd say uh, end of 87, even though he had his injury near the end and wasn't the same, he, he has to be in, you know, right beneath, if we, if we had Hulk and Piper, you know, A1 and A2 and, uh, and also Andre right there and Savage, uh, but the group right, right beneath would be, you know, Orndorff, JYD, Santana, and like Steamboat. Uh, Orndorff was phenomenal. I mean, he, he brought so much credibility to WWF. He was so intense, so believable. Uh, he, he, there wasn't anything he couldn't do. Uh, I will tell you a, a bizarre uh, a footnote. Um, I think from what I remember reading, he did debut for WWF in like April of 83 on a West Coast trip. And uh, Adonis actually wrestled briefly on that same West Coast swing. And supposedly he did a job out there. I don't think it was one that they taped, uh, like how they would later have guys like Rick Rude lose to Jerry Allen. But um, I think they had him lose to Billy Anderson or somebody on the West Coast. I don't know if it was just a test of loyalty or to to see if he would do what they wanted him to do. But but that apparently that really happened. I, I did see that result. I believe it was April 1983 in Los Angeles. I have no reason to doubt that. The result is accurate, and yeah, that is kind of weird, but you're right. I mean, Paul Orndorff was one of the elite guys. He was, uh, you know, had his feud with Hogan both in 84 and in 86, and hey, 
he was in the main event at the first WrestleMania. So what can you say? They they really brought in a a a, a guy who looked like he had it all and in eighty three. Yeah, and I'd say if it wasn't for the injury he had uh, after or during the Hogan feud in 86, uh, I think he would have remained a big player in WWF. I mean, yeah, he was getting probably stale or overexposed, but yeah, you know, he stayed in the business. I mean, he was even wrestling for WCW in 2000. I mean, he he was, you know, definitely uh, not uh, close to his prime anymore, but still had a lot of the same look and same intensity. He was just used as kind of a mid-card guy by that point. No, I remember Paul Orndorff in Smoky Mountain Wrestling when that first started. I was like, wow, they got Paul Orndorff. How's that? Well, it's because he lives in Georgia. He's right down the street. So anyway, we're going to wrap this up. We wanted to kind of give an introduction to the show. Uh, This is where we are coming into December 31st, 1983. We've got a brand new WWF champion. We don't know about it yet. But the WWF has signed Hulk Hogan, and we're gonna he's going to be debuting on TV in a couple of weeks. And uh, Steve, I want to thank you for volunteering to be the co-host of this show, and we'll see you here again in another two weeks when we talk about early January 1984. I hope you liked that. The next couple of Stick to Wrestlings are going to be a review of January 1984 in the WWF. We'll be talking about that next week. This is the final Stick to Wrestling of of 2023. I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does producing Stick to Wrestling. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Everyone have a happy 2024. And go Tennessee, beat Iowa. Happy New Year, you bunch of clamheads. This concludes our podcast day.